If you could choose any superpower in the world, what would it be? I'd like to know. Email me your dream superpower to chad at datages.com and then sit back and enjoy this episode of Datages, where I'll share with you my fantasy superpower. Friends and family, welcome to Datages. Today we are talking superpowers. Did you email me with your dream superpower? I'll share with you my fantasy superpower, and it's not a typical superpower. I'm not after x-ray vision, super speed, or the ability to fly, or Hulk-like strength. If I could choose any superpower, it would be the ability to speak and understand every language in the world. Imagine the ability to travel anywhere in the world at any time, step off a plane, and be able to understand and communicate with everyone around you. Think about how amazingly diverse your life and experiences could be. The people you could meet, the experiences you could have, the doors that would open from a business perspective. And here's an even crazier thought. I think this superpower could be within our reach within my lifetime. I'll tell you how in a few minutes. Today's episode is based on this adage. You don't have to be the best in the world to succeed. You just have to be the best version of you. And we're going to continue to talk about superpowers, not the science fiction version of superpowers, but the special innate abilities that each of us possesses, the things that make us unique. We'll talk about how an awareness of these unique innate abilities can help you unleash the best version of you. And as the datage says, you don't have to be the very best in the world. There's always going to be somebody bigger, stronger, smarter, wealthier. I recently had the opportunity to hear a talk with Matt Abrahams, who's a lecturer in organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, as well as an author and a fellow podcaster. His podcast is Think Fast, Talk Smart, and I recommend you check out his book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. Catchy, right? He certainly knows how to stay on brand, and that's not a surprise because Matt is an expert on communication. One of the things Matt Abrahams preaches is maximize your mediocrity. What he means by that is sometimes we can get stuck in a feedback loop with ourselves being so focused on judging and critiquing ourselves and our own performance that we can actually interfere with that performance. He argues that if we can stop trying to be better, and just be present in our communications and our performance of our responsibilities, we can maximize that performance within our capabilities rather than being futilely focused on trying to be better than we are. Perhaps we can bring Matt to datages in the year ahead. He's certainly on our radar. Let's now talk about strengths and let me introduce the topic of competitive advantage. In a business sense, competitive advantage is a condition or circumstance that puts a company in a favorable or superior business position. Competitive advantage can apply for individuals as well in business or in any competitive setting. Most of my discussion today will focus on competitive advantage in a business context. I found a really interesting discussion of competitive advantage on the website for the BDC, which is the Business Development Bank of Canada. I was not previously aware of the BDC, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. The BDC is wholly owned by the Canadian government and was established in 1944 to help create and develop Canadian businesses through financing, 
growth capital, and venture financing and advisory services as well, with a focus on small and medium-sized enterprises. The BDC had this to say about competitive advantage. A competitive advantage can take three primary forms. Cost advantage, producing a product or providing a service at a lower cost than competitors. Offer advantage, differentiating a product by adding features that are highly valued by customers. And niche advantage, serving a specific segment of the market better than anyone else. Excelling in at least one of these three categories while remaining competitive in the other two puts a company in a strong position compared with competitors. If a company achieves only average performance in all three categories, however, it will not stand out in the marketplace, which may cause it to underperform and ultimately fail. You could say the BDC is, in and of itself, a competitive advantage for Canadian companies trying to establish themselves on the global scene. Let's explore in more depth what the BDC said about companies being in a strong position versus achieving only average performance. I'm going to borrow from my educational background in microeconomics to explain this a bit further. We'll talk now about perfect markets. What is a perfect market? A perfect market is a market that has no anomalies that would prevent the best or lowest prices being obtained. A perfect market is characterized by a few important parameters. A large number of buyers, a large number of sellers, products that are homogeneous, information that is freely available to everyone in the market, and there's no collusion between the market participants, and every participant is a price taker not having the ability to influence market prices. A truly perfect market is a theoretical concept only. There are no absolutely perfect markets. There are a small few that are nearly perfect markets. Those selling commodities such as agricultural products represent the closest approximation of a perfect market. Is a perfect market a good thing? I would argue strongly that it's not. If you wanna understand, just ask the farmers of America. As I just said, the agricultural commodities market is the closest example we can find to a perfect market. So what's wrong with this perfectly imperfect market or imperfectly perfect, depending on how you look at it? I don't have to look any further than Aunt Sandy, Uncle Gary, and Cousin Matt. My mom's family are all farmers in Indiana. And while Sandy, Gary, and Matt run one of the larger farms in the state, it's a really, really difficult life. There are so many things that can go wrong every year that can destroy your crop production. Too much rain, too little rain, too cold, too hot, insects, disease, and on and on and on. There is no perfect year and no perfect crop in this perfect market. Farmers struggle against the elements every year to produce enough of a crop to be profitable. But what about when things go really well? Unfortunately, when it goes well for you as a farmer in any one year, it probably goes well for lots of other farmers producing the same crops. And what happens then? You get crushed by the commodities market because the increased supply in that harvest year drives down the price of whatever you're producing. Even though your crops survive, your profits do not. It's really a lose-lose proposition to be a farmer, trust me. But doesn't this price-reducing mechanism work well for everyone else, for the customers in particular? Not really, not in the long run. Why? Because if farmers cannot survive, even in the best of times, and cannot make a profit, how can they continue to invest millions of dollars in the infrastructure required for farming production? There are only two possible outcomes. One, 
the farmers cannot invest in production capacity, which will translate to reduced ability to meet demand in future years, ultimately driving up prices dramatically for consumers. Or two, the government has to subsidize the ongoing investment by farmers in order to maintain adequate capacity. And who pays for that? You and I, the consumers and taxpayers. As this example illustrates, perfect markets really aren't a good thing. They are far from perfect because prices are driven down so low that it is quite difficult to generate a reasonable profit and sustain the industry. There are three kinds of profit as defined in economics and accounting terms. One, normal profit. Two, economic profit. And three, accounting profit. Normal profit is the bare minimum profit required to keep a business in operation. In a normal profit equilibrium, total revenue for a company equals total cost. Economic profit is any surplus available to a company after achieving normal profit. This is the gravy, if you will. Accounting profit is the actual net income of a company calculated in any accounting year. This is the reported profit after all the results are in. In a marketplace that affords a company only normal profit, theoretically, the company can survive. But two critical things are lost. One is the ability to invest in innovation, enhancements, and improvements for the future, as we discussed. The other is the incentive for anyone to pursue the business in the first place. If I told you that you could work really hard for the next 10 years in a risky endeavor, and on the back end, you're going to break even, would you invest your time in that business? I doubt it. No one would. As a result, it is critical for businesses to seek out less perfect markets where they can realize higher profit levels. And it is critical for entrepreneurs to not only find these imperfect markets, but also to understand their competitive advantage that allows them to exploit an imperfect market. Our Canadian friends define three types of competitive advantages for companies. Cost advantage, offer advantage, and niche advantage. I think at the entrepreneurial level for individuals or enterprises, there can be lots of different competitive advantages that are very, very nuanced. I'll start by sharing personal examples of competitive advantage. These are just a few of the competitive advantage that I've possessed in my own business at different times. One, education. Education can be a tremendous advantage. I learned from a formal educational environment, as well as from exposure to my family's business growing up, what the tools, processes, skills, and mindset were that could lead to success in my business, commercial real estate. We talked in an early episode of Datages about the Datage, the most important thing to learn is learning itself. In that episode, I touted the importance of a broad liberal arts education to develop the ability to learn, the ability to solve problems, and the ability to work with others. I believe that these elements of formal education are far more valuable than learning specific trade skills in school. Learning specific skills for a business are best learned in a professional setting. Working closely with skilled professionals and learning by example is incredibly valuable. Even more valuable, I would argue, is learn by doing. You've heard me talk before about the pedagogical nature of my company. We follow what I refer to as the med school approach to business education. See one, do one, teach one. Once you've seen from a business leader how something is done, Jumping in and doing it yourself is the way to solidify your knowledge and teaching others how to do that same thing really locks in that knowledge and proves that you've achieved understanding. Number two is relationships. 
the relationships I forged in an environment like Stanford, the relationships passed along to me by my father in the real estate industry, and the relationships I've continued to forge through performance and being of service to others in business have opened doors to me and kept them open throughout my career. Relationships are a truly precious commodity. And in many ways today, they are an endangered species. In a culture that has become entrenched and transactional, breaking down these constraints to forge and nurture meaningful relationships can mean a lot today and tomorrow in business and in life. I believe the quality of our professional pursuits is only as good as the experience we share with others in executing on them. Number three is hard work. I've always been willing to outwork anyone else in my industry to cultivate opportunities. Borrowing from my Indiana family heritage, I'm a farmer in business, not a hunter. What does this mean, really? It means that, as I mentioned before, I'm not looking for a deal and lured into a transactional approach to doing business. I'm looking for a model that works effectively and then focused on investing my time and energy into continually improving that model and replicating it over and over. As my father always told me, you don't make money doing something once, you make money doing the same thing again and again. The only way to do that is to keep working hard. Working hard today earns you the right to work even harder tomorrow. There's a bonus adage for you right there. Number four is imperfect information. Through a combination of the prior factors I mentioned, I've been able throughout my career to unlock hidden information that led me to the right business opportunities ahead of others in the marketplace. We're going to explore this fourth form of competitive advantage in far greater depth in just a moment. These four examples are only a few of the forms that exist out there. You may have access to many others that are not on my list. Perhaps you have a competitive drive, an amazing personality, or maybe you're famous, or perhaps you just have a winning smile. There are many types of competitive advantage, large and small. Perhaps the universal element in competitive advantage is self-awareness. Knowing your strengths and weaknesses is absolutely critical to being able to take advantage of them, regardless of what they may be. And importantly, competitive advantage is not static by any means. On the contrary, it is fluid based upon evolution of you as an individual, your company, and the marketplace. Let me focus here in more detail on the competitive advantage of imperfect information that I highlighted a minute ago. We often hear that knowledge is power, and nowhere is that more true than in business. Having access to critical information and insights ahead of your competitors is perhaps the single most important factor in business. This is why we educate ourselves, to learn how to extract critical information. Like I said, the most important thing to learn is learning itself. This is also one of the key reasons we cultivate professional relationships. Another thing we often hear is, it's not what you know, but whom you know. I'll put a spin on that though. I would argue that it is whom you know that can incredibly impact what you know. We live in an information age. Clearly, information is becoming more and more transparent and universally available every day. Here's a seemingly simple but incredibly impactful example from my business. We used to use our skill set in performing market research and our capacity for hard work to actually get out into a marketplace and gather more information than our competitors could more quickly than they could. And we had a business model that was unique for years that allowed us to leverage our relationship with tenants to apply these skills in multiple markets around the country so quickly and efficiently that I used to say quite often that we really had no competition. As I said, it is whom you know that drives what you know. 
our tenant relationships gave us an informational advantage. Our model was so well-conceived that we could conduct plenty of business over a wide enough geography that we didn't run into situations where other people were trying to eat our lunch, so to speak. But that's not the case any longer. And one new universal technological innovation had a significant impact on this aspect of our competitive advantage, Google Maps. When Google put a view of the world on everyone's desktop and in the palm of their hand, we lost a key informational advantage. Everyone now knows what's on every corner in our country without having to step foot outside their office. Certainly, Google Maps didn't eliminate every bit of informational advantage we possess, but it had a big impact. And there's a lot more information becoming universally available every single day. When I have time to worry about things like this, and between worrying about everything else I have to worry about, here's what I worry about. Let's take freedom of information to an extreme. If essentially all information available to human beings becomes available to all human beings in real time, can anyone in this future world ever have an informational advantage? Arguably, no. And is that freedom of information a good thing? I don't think so. Perfect information, I believe, will lead to perfect markets. And as we've already seen, perfect markets destroy investment, innovation, and achievement. From a U.S. perspective, I don't think it's overstating it to say that this would represent the destruction of the American dream. But we're a long way from such a dystopian utopia of universal information, right? Mm, I'm not so sure. We already have the entire internet available to us on our cell phones. What happens next when Elon Musk perfects Neuralink and we all start implanting chips in our brains that are directly connected to all of the information available throughout the web? Neuralink received the U.S. Federal Drug Administration's approval to launch its first human clinical study in May 2023, and experts project that they could have a product ready for market within a decade. Now, I'm sure this will be an amazing step in human evolution. To come back to the top of this episode, I might even get my superpower. In theory, such a device could be able to operate as a universal translator. Undoubtedly, Google Translate will be far better and faster within that same decade, but I still worry about the greater consequences, which could go far beyond what I've highlighted today related to the economy and business. But let's step back from the future now and focus on the present. What can you do in today's world to identify and utilize your competitive advantage for the benefit of yourself and your company? I'll wrap up today with these few quick tips. Know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. Define your own success. Evaluate progress based on your own growth and your trajectory toward optimal you-ness. Assess and recalibrate frequently. Acknowledge your success along the way. Share your success. Operate in gratitude for everyone around you. And let's wrap up today with that topic of gratitude. Gratitude is a powerful force in building and nurturing relationships. But the beauty of gratitude is that it benefits both the giver and the receiver. Eric Mosley, who is an author and the CEO of Work Human, wrote in Forbes magazine, the act of expressing gratitude makes us vulnerable and authentic, creating a powerful human connection between the giver and the receiver. Saying, what you did has a positive impact on me is a profound message to give to another human being, and it puts both of you in a happier, more grateful frame of mind. The act of giving recognition can be an even more transformative experience than the act of receiving it. 
Gratitude is definitely a superpower when it comes to personal and professional relationships. And as I said earlier, the relationships we build are some of our greatest competitive advantages. And on the topic of gratitude, I'm going to wrap up today with a joke that is not a dad joke, but a grandma joke, and one that is just in time for Christmas. Grandma gave the grandchildren checks every single Christmas. This year, she was excited to share with one of her friends, for once the children came over in person to thank me. How wonderful, her friend said. What do you think caused that change in behavior? Oh, that's easy, the grandmother replied. This year, I didn't sign the checks. Remember to share your gratitude this Christmas season. And remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. 